Welcome to the Like a Bigfoot podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ward. This week, we are bringing back on uh, John Peterson. Uh, if you didn't listen last year, uh, you can check out our episode number 181. Um, and John came on and he talked all about uh, what he had just accomplished, which was something called the impossible row. Um, it was this insane event where six athletes, six rowers, uh, decided they were going to row across the Drake Passage, uh, the infamous Drake Passage, which is just this incredibly rough stretch of sea, of ocean, um, between Chile and Antarctica. And uh, on Christmas Day 2019, uh, they became the first people to do a self propelled crossing of the Drake Passage. So we had John on. He came on and talked all about that event. It was an awesome episode. In fact, it was one of my favorite episodes that we recorded last year. Um, and so I wanted to have him back on because I always think it's it's interesting. Like anytime there's a big adventure, a big expedition, I think it's always interesting to talk to somebody right after, right? Like a couple weeks later, a month later, you know, after they finished their, their adventure. Um, but I also think it's fun and interesting to talk with them, you know, after giving that adventure some space, right? Like a year later in this case, um, or even more, because I'm really curious about how people process the lessons that they learned by going out there and doing something just mind-blowingly crazy. Um, and how they apply those lessons in their regular life. And sometimes, you know, a week after a big adventure, a big event, or like, you know, um, something like that, a week after is not really enough time to really process it. Like you're still kind of in that like afterglow of, of, you know, going out there and, and accomplishing something. Um, but I feel like a year later is time enough for it to kind of like settle down and time enough for you to really kind of think back to it and kind of reminisce. Uh, and so that's what I wanted to do with John today. Um, but also John had the, uh, experience of not only doing the expedition, but, uh, having a documentary made about it. So as they were doing this row, uh, the Discovery Channel was out there documenting documenting it, and they made like this great hour-long documentary. You can check it out on Discovery Plus. It's called The Impossible Row. Me and my six-year-old watched it. I, I just absolutely loved it, and actually it gave me some context to what John was talking about in the, our first podcast together because man, he's, he was talking about how crazy the storms were and the waves, but you just have to see it to really believe it and see it to truly get a grasp of what they went through. Um, and John will kind of explain the logistics again in case you missed that first episode, but basically there's six guys rowing, three guys rowing at a time. The other three are resting every hour and a half. They switch and they did that for nearly 13 days straight to freaking Antarctica. <laughs> so uh, I am incredibly honored, very excited to have John back on the show. 
Let's get right into it. This is the Like a Bigfoot podcast number 238 with John Peterson of The Impossible Row. John, you were one of my absolute favorite guests of 2020 uh, after your impossible row across the Drake Passage. And yeah, man, I'm just really excited to have you back on. So thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks, Chris, for having me on. It's honestly an honor to be even for you even to consider having me back on. So I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to talking. No to you. way. Honor is all mine. And John <laughs> got to come on and my leadership class last year, got to talk to him and interview him a bit. And I was thinking back to it. I'm like, that was when we were doing Google Meet and no one knew how to do it. And then like a month later, it was like, and now you're doing Zoom. That's what everybody does. <laughs> yeah. You had me projected on your, your whiteboard in the front of the room, right? Yeah. 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 I was bragging to my assistant principal. I'm like, remember that guy we interviewed? Because she was in there too. Uh-huh. And I'm like, I get to talk to him again. She was super <laughs> psyched. So, so okay. yeah, man. Well, I want to have you back on for a couple of reasons. One, just to talk with you again. But, um, but two, I wanted to hear your reflections. We're like a year a little over a year out from your big adventure. Mm-hmm. And I guess start by reminding people like what that adventure was, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Just about a year, we landed uh, a year ago, we landed on Antarctica, the mainland of Antarctica, December 25th, uh, 2019. And we had just passed over the Drake Passage, um, 655 nautical miles from Cape Horn, which is on the tip of Chile in South America. Um, yeah, passed over the Drake Passage, which is considered one of the most treacherous uh, you know, bodies of water in the world because it's the, the confluence of both the Pacific and the Atlantic, all at the same spot and tends to be very, uh, very storm heavy. Um, and so we, that was what we got. You, know, you get um, about a storm every eight hours or so. And, um, and we, it took us about 13, 12, 12 days plus to get across um, six of us, six guys. So myself and five others, um, crew of uh, a crew of guys from different, different countries. So we had um, Cam Bellamy, Cameron Bellamy from South Africa. Uh, we had Fionn Paul, who was our captain. Uh, he was from Iceland. Um, and then... Uh, uh, we had Andrew Town, who is from Minnesota. Uh, Colin O'Brady, who is from a couple, lives in a couple different places. I'll give him, I'll give him Wyoming, Jackson Hole, uh, and and also Portland and Hawaii, different places in the U.S. Myself, California, um, and then of course Jamie, who's from from Edinburgh and Scotland. Um, so we all came together. Um, we actually did a training row in Scotland on Labor Day before we left. Um, and I can talk about that later too. Um, and then we, and then in December, uh, just, I think I went down there to, um, we stage at a Punta Arenas, which is um, actually a pretty commonly known staging place for a lot of people who go into, um, into Patagonia and other places in, in that, are, that are pretty famous down there in, in South America. Um, staged there for a few days and then took a, took a ship um, that carried our rowing boat to the Cape and they dropped us in and, and we started rowing. Dude. Can you, I mean, you just started the whole thing by saying like, then we landed on Antarctica <laughs> and I just want to like ask you, are in your mind, are you like, holy crap, like I was on Antarctica. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think even in the moment it was surreal. We yeah. just, we knew that it was, it was 
it was sort of an experience that maybe we would never get again to be standing um, on on sea legs on these rocks, these big, <laughs> you know, big, huge black boulders, um, looking up at this glacier that was literally sort of veering down into the ocean in the um, in the bay where we landed, and yeah, it was incredible. I mean, it, it did feel surreal because there was humpback whales, you know, tails coming out of the water and little penguins swimming in and out of the water. Literally the, the, the area where we landed, there was this enormous leopard seal laying on snow, sunning, sunning himself or herself and just kind of looked over at us like, so I'm, I'm here all <laughs> oh, the time. <laughs> yeah. And we kind of looked back and we're like, Hey, you know, so it was just, it was, it was the, the wildlife there is just incredible, you know, and we had, um, we had been rowing once you, once you get close, um, close to, to mainland Antarctica, that's where you start to see those sort of iconic, you know, images of, um, these islands that look like the, the top of the Rockies just jutting out of the water. Um, and you, we rowed across something called the Bransfield Strait, which is, about 80 nautical miles. So still a pretty significant um, distance from the first island that you hit to where mainland is. And just going across the Bransfield Strait, you know, you're running into uh, glaciers that are literally 15 stories high. That's insane. Um, just rolling, you know, four kilometers an hour past your four knots, you know, right, right past your boat. Um, so it is, it is definitely a surreal experience. And if, if you ever get a chance to just go to Antarctica period, um, yeah. highly, highly recommend it. It's on so, my bucket list. It's awe sure. inspiring for sure. We, uh, my daughter and I, we get these little like boxes of activities and stuff, bust them out on a rainy day kind of deals. And we had one that's like a travel one. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we opened this map and the very first thing she points to is Antarctica and Shackleton's shipwreck, which is on there for some reason. And I was like, dude, you are, you're my kid. You are my kid. Uh, so she knows, she knows I want to go down there. So, Oh yeah. I hope you, I hope you both get the chance to do it someday, man. It's a, it's a dream for sure. I mean, and that's the thing that is wild when I think about what you've done and think about it a year later, you know, you still are like, probably, you know, as a principal, you're seeing maps on the wall and stuff. And to be like that spot there, like I've been there, like mm -hmm. that just has to be mind blowing. Yeah. There's all these little moments that come up. Um, I was trying to think of some, you know, before, before we got on and I was sort of rummaging around um, my sock drawer and found the knife that I carried on the trip. And it just sort of all of a sudden flooded back into my head. Um, this knife was, um, you know, it's like a, something that you might, it's like a field knife that you might take hunting with you. Um, and I opened it up and it's rusted now, you know, stainless steel and it, 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 it had gone across the Drake with me. And the reason it kind of flooded these memories back is I, this knife to me was like my lifeline. And I had it in, you know, in, we had on like a, uh, just coveralls you know, that were Gore-Tex coveralls and there was sort of a cargo pocket on my right side and I would put my knife in there and make sure to check it was there every single shift and the reason is we had a long discussion about the safety cords that hooked us onto the boat um, so just for context you're wearing a, a life jacket over your gear 
uh, your, your weather gear and the, the life jacket has a, um, a harness on the front and the harness on the front then connects to lifelines that go across, across the boat. So if you do go out or if the boat does flip over, you're staying connected to the boat and you're not going to, you know, drift off with the current. Um, but what we had a lot of fear of, and we actually debated before we left, do you want a, a short line, which was three feet or a long line, which was six feet. Um, and one of the fears that we had was that that long line, that six foot line would potentially get wrapped around your neck yeah. um, and choke you, you know, while you're in this huge storm or wave. And so we all were like, let's go short lines. <laughs> and then my back, you know, my backup was always this knife. Um, because in my head, every time, every time we went out into big storms, I was like, okay, is my knife there just in case I get wrapped up underneath this boat and I need to cut it loose. Um, and it's, it's funny because afterwards like maybe for a couple months afterwards i would i would have like this twitch to touch the side of my right leg just to check you know and it, it, it's kind of amazing how these things just get so ingrained in you when it's when it's in this real visceral you know space in your amygdala brain that's just yeah. like i need to i need to survive and are the tools for my survival there um so just reaching into my sock drawer you know a year later and seeing and feeling that knife it just brought back a flood of all those memories yeah of being out there on that ocean man i gotta say like after watching the film which is called impossible Row, it's on discovery or discovery plus i think is where we watched it um after watching it i was like i just remember you describing the waves and you know i had seen the little segments they put on youtube leading up to it or like as you guys were doing it which was Mm -hmm. wild to me like they could make short films while you're doing this um but like seeing the whole event and the storms you guys were in, I was like, you just have to see it to believe it. Like those were rough. <laughs> like those are rough seas. And yeah. yeah, dude, like a couple moments where you guys are just getting banged around and I'm watching it with my kid and she's just like, why is there one guy sitting out there? Cause there's always one guy in the middle of the storm who has to sit on the boat. And I was like, well, you know, they can't all fit in the, little compartment so one has to go out there and i was like man what that's some bravery right there (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think i think you're um something i was thinking about is like this idea of relativity right we before we left cameron all the guys um well i should say this three of the guys fian cameron and jamie had actually rode together across the indian ocean and cameron um who was like a human metronome he was the stroke seat of the other uh, the other crew and just for context too so we're rowing three guys on three guys off continuous 90 minutes never stopping for 12 days um and the reason for that is because if you if you stop rowing um your momentum shifts and potentially get a chance to breach and then the boat can flip in some ways so you want to have continuous motion forward which is why we took six guys um, and what has built a four-person boat because we wanted to have that manpower to just keep the boat moving forward, especially if we were going to run into some big, you know, 20, 30 foot waves, which we did. Um, but yeah, I was thinking about this idea of relativity after the row and how in the beginning, you know, we talked to Cameron and he's like, yep, you're going to be out on that ocean. I was on the Indian Ocean and I was in this huge storm and we were rolling through these huge waves and I was afraid for my life. And, and then we hit our first storm on day three. And I remember being like, I'm afraid for my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you kind of, you, you go out there and you, you know, we finally did hit a, a sea anchor. And um, that just means where you drop a parachute essentially in the water and that keeps your bow facing um, into the direction of the wind and the waves so that you don't go breach. 
um, or, or, you know, um, sideways against the waves. But I was af really afraid in that first storm because I'd never experienced something like that where you're just all alone, waves slapping from every angle on the side of the boat, coming over the top of the boat. Um, and, you know, you're just, you're cold, you're wet. And I think this idea of relativity is, I think we experienced bigger storms after that first one. But after you go through that first storm, you're like, okay, I know what to do. You know, I know what the boat can handle. I know what I can handle. And then it, even if the, even if it is a, a bigger wave or a bigger situation, which it was, I think in the final, the final couple of days, it didn't feel as, as scary as that first day. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I was just thinking about that concept of once you've really battled through something that's really difficult, the other challenges that come after maybe aren't, aren't as bad because you, you kind of know what to expect. Yeah. Well, I love that idea just for like anything you're starting that seems kind of scary right away or intimidating. And then you go out and you prove to yourself you can do it or in your case, survive it. <laughs> and yeah. then, you know, later on, that just gives you a little bit more confidence and kind of like builds that up. Yeah. And I think you, you, you know, you kind of start to find humor in things too. Yeah. Um, you know, going out, going out on a sea anchor at, at day 12 and, you know, your teammate hands you a really wet goose down jacket that's soaked to the core and is like, this will keep you warm. You know, <laughs> and, <laughs> It's, you know, minus the water is probably 32 degrees Fahrenheit or 33 degrees Fahrenheit. And um, there's snow coming every which way in your face. And you're like, yep, can't wait to put on this wet, cold goose down jacket with a couple of, you know, black contractor trash bags over the top of that. And that's going to be, that's going to be my existence for the next 90 minutes yeah. on, the, on the deck of this boat. That's a good part about having teammates. You know, there has to be at least one guy who's still in the mood to joke around, like bust each other and things like that, you know, and versus like, if you were trying it by yourself, you could really get into a funk because you don't have those people to just remind you how just crazy it all is and kind of funny uh, from a different perspective. Yeah, no, when I was when I was rewatching the, the, um, the documentary, I realized that humor was really a thread, I think that Carrie, especially Carrie Andrew and I through it. Um, you know, I think it helps you um, helps you accept your reality. You know, I, I remember this moment where I was sitting out on the, the deck and Eating my, I was eating my granola and a wave came over and the seawater went inside of it. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I guess this, I guess this is ice cream now. You know, you just kind of like, you, you're like, yeah, it might've been a warm granola, but now this is a cold ice cream. Um, and in that moment you'd be like, oh shit, you know, now I'm eating yeah. seawater granola, but you just kind of, you make light, you try to make light of, of, of bad situations. And I think humor is, is really, was really, really important and critical for both Andrew and I in our, in our shifts together. Andrew and I would sleep in the bow together. Um, and, you know, within the first three hours of the trip, we, we both had our own sleeping bags and we were like, nope, I'm going to share a sleeping bag with you. We're going to just get close and warm because that's, you know, that's how we were going to stay warm. Um, and yeah. that's what we did. Yeah, that's awesome, man. I, so just a couple of things, like when you look back a year later, and it's weird because you have this whole other factor where they filmed it and they made a documentary, mm -hmm. which is really cool. So I want to hear about that perspective in a bit. Um, but as you look, like reflect back, are there any lessons that kind of like stand out or persist where you're like, oh yeah, these are things I've used like every day since? Yeah. I mean, I think we're just talking about humor. I think that that's just a really important 
thing in life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when I think about my family and, and us trying to make even light of, of COVID, right. Which is a very serious thing that we're all experiencing right now, but um, finding humor, I think is, is really important. Um, I think this idea of like getting to versus having to, so like you get to do something or you have to do something. Yeah. And I think you can take that mindset into any situation. Um, you know, we, I had to remind myself in the hardest times, like I'm out here and I get to do this. Like I get to sit on this boat. I get to sit through this storm. I get to experience this challenge with this group, of, um, you know, this group of teammates. Um, and to me, you know, you can apply that to anything. I, I love working in a school. Like I get to be an educator. Um, where I think sometimes the job can wear down, you know, you're a teacher, you understand, like it can wear you down. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think your approach when you wake up in the morning is like, do you get to do this job today or do you have to do this job? And not everybody has that choice all the time. I'll, I'll fully recognize that, but I think yeah. that that's a mindset um, that I take. Um, I'm going to remember that cause it's Sunday and tomorrow's Monday. <laughs> yeah. It's all, you know, it, I'm not saying it's like an easy, an easy phrase to accept. No, but. but I see it, man. Like I learned my very first year of teaching. It was like the lesson that stood out amongst every, you know, you learn so much in your first year of teaching, but mm-hmm. the one that really stuck was the way I came into class, like the attitude that I came in it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like mm-hmm. if I came in on a Monday or a Tuesday and I was just grumpy and like, Oh, can't believe I have to do this. Like the kids recognize that. And then they're like, well, we're going to make it a lot harder on you. Good sir. Yeah. Whereas if you come in with the attitude that you're excited to be there, they feed off of that as well. You know? Mm-hmm. No, that's a hundred percent true. Right. You, you, um, the misery loves company. Yeah. I think, <laughs> you know, teamwork, um, I think for me, teamwork is something that I really value and appreciate and seek out, I think professionally and in, in, in my, in my personal life too. Um, I think a hard truth of teamwork is like, you don't always get your way. Right. Um, and I heard one of my mentors said this to me a couple of weeks ago, but at some point on a team, you will be the weakest link. Um, and then you're going to need other strengths to lift you up and that was I think that that's always always true on a team you will be the weakest link at some point and um you know it reminded me of this of this point on the row where it was late at night probably like 1 a.m 2 a.m which are always difficult shifts because nighttime shifts you're getting slammed with waves your oars get caught uh, you, and you can't see it in the daytime. You can kind of anticipate when a big wave is going to come through, but you can't see it or anticipate it in the dark. Um, which just makes it more challenging, especially just on fit from a physical standpoint too, because your core is so engaged going up and down the slide. And in those moments where you can't anticipate those waves, your aura gets stuck. So you're, you're constantly being pulled laterally back and forth. So it's like a, you know, severe oblique workout for 90 minutes. Um, and you kind of have to pull, you know, pull with one side of your body to get the oar back out of the water and just stay in rhythm with your crew. Um, but this, you know, this nighttime shift, um, I had been feeling seasick for, for a while and we wore scopolamine patches on the back of our ear to help, you know, keep the, uh, the seasickness down. But 
felt seasick and I, I didn't realize that my patch had actually fallen off. Um, who knows how long before then. So I go out for my shift and threw up over the side of the boat, kept growing a little bit, throwing up over the side of the boat. And I remember in the, it probably was my weakest moment on the trip. Um, and I remember, you know, in that moment, Andrew's like, if you got it, Hey, if you got to take a couple strokes off, like take a couple strokes off, we got you. Right. And Colin is like, I got another patch in my, in my med kit. Let me go get it for you and I'll bring it out to you. You know? So in that moment, um, it could have been a, it could have been a very personal moment to like gut it out, but my teammates were there and they had my back and I think that yeah. got me through it, you know? Yeah. Um, and I did say Mari's name every single stroke for 90 minutes. I think I may have told that story last time, but yeah, it's just like, you got to go to a deep, dark place sometimes, but at the same time, like in those weakest moments on a team, you've got other people to stand in your weakness and, and lift you back up. That's awesome. Did you, so, you know, being a collegiate rower and a leader on that team, if you could talk a little bit about that, uh, was, was it hard? Cause I mean, once you're a leader on like, a team in the past, right? And you've probably been a fairly good athlete your whole entire life. And now all of a sudden having to have the humility to admit, like, I am the weak link right now. Like, that's me. Like, did you struggle with that at all? Just in that one moment or, or not? Um, I think, yeah. I mean, I think it's a recognition of like, what do I need to survive? Yeah. <laughs> what do I need to make it through this? And, um, and sometimes that's admitting that you're, you need somebody else's help. Um, I wrote down this, this quote before we started, cause it, it kind of came up for me right now. It's, um, and I think it's really true of rowing, but I think it's true of like, uh, of any kind of team. It's from, from Dan Brown, boys in the boat. Have you ever read that book or heard of it? I, I've heard of the book. Yeah. I haven't read it yet. It's about the 1936, um, Olympic crew from the university of Washington. Um, and the, the quote that he said in the book was, a man couldn't harmonize with his crewmates unless he opened his heart to them. He had to care about them. It wasn't just the rowing, but his crewmates that he had to give himself up to. Um, and I was thinking about this idea of like teamwork and you do, you, give, you do give yourself up for the other guys in order to make it all work. Um, if you're sitting in the stroke seat, you have a big responsibility to keep the pace, make sure you keep going. And in fact, sometimes on the bathroom breaks, um, I, I sat in the bow, but on the bathroom breaks, you know, when Fian had to go, um, I would move up to the stroke and I would stroke while he was doing yeah. his thing. And every time I went up to stroke, I was always like, damn, this is really hard <laughs> because you're leading, you know, you're leading those other guys. Um, there's just different responsibilities and different seats in the boat even. And, and I think there's a recognition that, um, all of you working together is, is the thing that's going to pull you through both figuratively and literally. Um, but I do, I do think that that, that quote from Dan Brown really resonated for me when I read it after, especially after the row, cause it is this concept of like giving yourself up for the rest of the guys so that you can all achieve the, the final, the final glory together, yeah. final push together, whatever you want to call it. That's so amazing. What, uh, it's funny. Cause you said that and it reminded me of when I got to speak to Arshe who you kind of, you know, you, you email or you messaged me and you're like, you should hear this guy's story. Like, it's incredible. They'd made it a wonderful film called the beautiful, uh, most beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, reading his book and watching that film, having never been a rower, the thing that really captivated me is that idea. And it's a simple idea, but it's basically like, Hey, we don't get to where we need to go unless we're all in it together. Like it is, it seems almost as if it's like the perfect team sport, just because if the team isn't working correctly, like you're not going to go in the right direction even, you know, like let alone accomplish your goal. Like you won't even go straight if the team's not working together. And I just think that's a, that's something that really like captured my imagination with rowing. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I think one of the reasons why I fell in love with it when I was in high school, I started rowing when I was a ninth grader in high school and was lucky enough to do it. And after the first day was hooked, I was like, yeah. I get to spend time on the water and, you know, work with a team and get a great workout. It was, it was an immediate, I think, love uh, for me and being on the water. And I grew up near the ocean too. Where'd you grow up? Um, I grew up in uh, Los Gatos, California, near Santa Cruz, California. Okay. Um, and so we you know, we were always at the beach and spending time on the water. And um, when I find, when I was in high school, spending a lot of time surfing and, um, kayaking and, you know, just doing everything that you can at the beach. Um, so for me, there was always this, this, this draw to the water, um, that I think was what cap sort of captivated me, I think as in, in high school, um, rowing. Yeah. I think, you, you know, this idea, it, they talk a lot about like rhythm in a, yeah. in a rowing boat and, um, I, I remember talking to Andrew about being out on the water. Um, you know, there is a point where if your technique is, is not good, you might be pulling as hard as you can, but your technique is horrible. It's not going to actually help the boat. And we both talked about at certain points during the, during the row across the Drake passage, when you're really physically tired, that you're just focused on good technique as opposed to pulling, you know, pulling as hard as you can. And so maybe you, you lighten up a little bit on the load, um, meaning like the amount of pressure that you're putting on the oars and really just think about the rhythm that you're in with the other guys so that the boat keeps moving and you're not slowing the boat down, but you're just, you're keeping it, um, you're keeping it moving without, um, you know, without catching, catching too much uh, drag with your oars or whatever you might be doing. So that was, we actually did to pass the time. We actually did like technique practices, which I think it would always bother Fion because I'd be like, "All right, we're gonna do pauses, <laughs> you know, half half arm pauses or, or or quarter slide pauses, or we would just do th- different things to pass the ninety minute shifts." Um, and and we would work on our technique in the middle of the Drake Passage, even. So yeah, I don't know if there's other rowers out here there listening to that. You can even practice technique in the middle of the Drake Passage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. I mean, eventually, did you guys like run out of things to talk about, or was that never a problem? Um, did you know? Like, did you have that feeling where you're like, okay, everyone needs to be quiet right now? You know? Yeah, I, there were plenty of opportunities for silence, actually. And the reason for that is because when you're rowing, you're actually facing backwards, right? Yeah. So you're not looking forward. And that means you're looking at the back of somebody's head. Um, and that person is looking at the back of somebody's head. So, and on top of that, you're, you're rowing four knots, maybe three and a half, four knots, which is a pretty good clip for ocean rowing boat. Um, but say you're in a storm and you're surfing down 20 foot waves and going 18 knots 
you're not doing anything in those moments other than just focusing on staying in the boat um, and making it through. So I think there were on the rowing shifts, sometimes, you know, sometimes there would be opportunities for us to, to kind of talk or um, just check in with each other and, um, uh, you know, and, and sometimes even listen to music. I think we, we listened to a few different, you know, soundtracks out there, but all right. Well, I have to ask about that then. So you have like people from all over the world, right? Yeah. All coming together on this boat. What's like a commonality where you're like, yeah, uh, you know, Bob Seger rocks or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it was more like Taylor Swift. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I didn't have a, I didn't have a, I didn't have a mix. It was usually Andrew's mix and Fion had some music time. If Fion, if he's going to listen to this, I, I'll just say it like, we were all kind of like, Fion, I don't think we can do your mix again. Like, this, <laughs> I'm not sure about this Icelandic rock. Um, but we did. Yeah. I think Andrew had a couple, you know, T Swifts in there and, um, uh, you know, Colin on his shift would sing Bob Marley too. Um, which was kind of cool to listen to because he would be out there rowing in you know a night shift and and then we would be sleeping in our cabin He'd be and, singing you to sleep and you could hear him out there yeah exactly singing by <laughs> um yeah so there were there were moments where where we had time to chat and talk yeah um, but generally like you're you're kind of in your own head because you're you're your head is covered up because it's cold there's yeah. a lot of wind going past you so you can't really hear in the first place and hearing i could hear andrew who sat right in front of me in the boat but hearing all the way up to fion who was only you know 10 feet away from me i couldn't really even hear what he was saying yeah. unless he turned around and shouted so you are in your head for those shifts and then when you're going into the cabin to sleep you're going in the cabin to eat and sleep yeah. um so eventually um eventually things just get kind of simplified you're you're you you get you know monotonous in terms of of what you're you're doing and i think it's because your your brain can't really you're so tired that your brain can't do anything other than like i'm gonna sleep i'm gonna eat i'm gonna go row and i'm gonna repeat these these actions do you do you miss that simplicity at all because i know for me just on the few like multi-day adventure stuff like that's the thing where in a weird way you're like this is relaxing i don't know how to describe it to like people who haven't done something like that but you are like oh i just have one thing to do for the day or like in the moment i don't have to think about anything else i just have to think about eating or i have to think about sleeping or rowing and besides those three things there's not really much else to think about yeah this is actually something I was, I was, um, I wanted to share with you when, when, when you had asked, you know, the, the questions before we started talking and it was this idea of, of just, um, of habit building and how we, how we can, how we sometimes think that we have to have a lot of different things going on in our lives, but really you can narrow it to a couple of things. Um, and you know, I always, I always like to think of this phrase of dream big, but start small. And, uh, there's this, uh, there's this idea out on the ocean where we, we all came with, you know, we all said, okay, you're going to bring a pack, like a backpack or, or, you know, like a dry bag. And that was, that was really all you were going to bring. And even that felt like a lot by the end, we were all always kind of like moving these bags around the sleeping area because we just didn't need all the extra stuff. 
Um, and the whole time, you know, all I really needed was like a dry pair of socks, my Gore-Tex socks, my uh, weather shoes, um, my long underwear. We wore like a, um, a Gore-Tex coverall and a Gore-Tex jacket and then your hat. And that was kind of it. I mean, you didn't really need much other than that. And um, it was kind of funny. We, uh, we had a, I had a toothbrush and Fian forgot his toothbrush. Okay. So we had made sort of like this negotiation of this toothbrush uh, that was like a common toothbrush by the end. <laughs> and it, it was in this like little plastic zip bag and I hooked it to the safety line and I had tooth, toothpaste and toothbrush. So every time I went out, I would brush my teeth and I'd zip the toothbrush up to the front and Fionn would brush his teeth and he'd zip it back to the back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess at that point we were, we're sharing a lot of germs. Um, <laughs> yeah, some people might cringe at that idea. Hey man, you're in the middle of the, the Arctic, <laughs> or not the Arctic Ocean, you're in the middle of the Drake Passage there. Like every, like it's, you know, san was sanitary stuff like that has to go out the window to a certain extent, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the the negotiation was, and this is why I think Fionn was probably the bravest guy on the trip, is uh, we had these orange safety suits, um, and the orange safety suit was specially made for the trip. Um, Fionn had them made for the guys, and basically, if you were to go in the water, this safety suit would. It, um, it essentially would create like an air bubble around you. So all the clothes and everything you're wearing inside, it stays dry. Um, the feet, the hands, and the head were almost like a wetsuit, if you can imagine, like a full body wetsuit. And then the, the, the body of it was like a, a, a really thin, but super, um, super strong material. Um, and it was orange. So we wore these big orange suits. Um, and I realized that putting it on. So imagine you're, you're, you know, you're a six foot two, 200 pound guy in a six foot tiny little bow cabin with two other guys. And you're trying to get this thing on in a huge storm. And so you're and, and it's not an easy, easy thing to get on. It's split in the middle. So you have to like put your legs in and then yeah. duck your body <laughs> into the top um, and zip it up in the middle. And so mine had gotten this little, little tiny pinhole in it. And you could see that it wasn't going to be fully waterproof. And it started, started to scare me. I was like, if I go in, I've got the wets, I've got the dry suit that won't work. And so Fionn was like, I'll wear your dry suit. You can have mine. But he's like, I got to use your toothbrush. <laughs> <laughs> Negotiation. Uh -huh. So that, that was kind of the give and take there, um, which was extremely brave on his end yeah. to even allow that to happen in the first place. But, um, but the, the, the give and take was was the hanging toothbrush on the line that I had to send down his way. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Well, I have to ask too, like, so I, I do want to hear like when you watched, when you were able to watch the documentary a year later ish, right. Um, what was, what was that like? Did you watch it with your family? Were you watching it by yourself? Were you watching it somehow with the other guys? Like how, how did that go? Yeah, we wanted to, Andrew tried to organize a group watching and uh, right off the bat. And I think he did watch it with a couple of guys, but we were all in different parts of the world. So yeah. it didn't quite, quite work out. Um, and Colin is actually on, on K2 right now, trying to make a, a winter ascent of K2, uh, which is nuts. So he was going to be out. Um, yeah. So we, we've talked about getting together maybe in the next couple of months and when everybody's 
when everybody's back and watching it together, which I think would be really cool. Yeah. Um, but I watched it. Yeah. I watched it with Sarah and Mari and one time, and then I watched it by myself one time just to, just to kind of take it in and remember. Yeah. And I paused it a few times to, to just write down some notes for myself of things that I was thinking at the time when we were, when we were watching it. Yeah. I think what I talked about before was like this idea of humor that I didn't realize was such an important part of what we were doing. Um, but we were, you know, we were cracking jokes all the time. And I think that, um, I think that that's one of the things that really, you know, really carried it, carried us through. And, um, yeah. Yeah, man. It's, it just had to have been a kind of a surreal experience because most, like a lot of people have these big kind of life-changing adventures and it has to exist just in their memory. And the way you remember things is different than the way things actually were or the way they're kind of captured on, on film in your case. Like mm -hmm. that just had to be kind of like a, an interesting, unique experience that you guys had. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think the guy, you know, we, we spent um, three days on the boat that took us to the Cape with the crew, you know, we're all, on, we're all eating meals together and hanging out and talking. And so I even got to, you know, form relationships with even the guys who are, are filming with filming us. Um, Brian Nashville was the, um, the producer and he was, he was kind of the guy who was, uh, who made, made the movie. And then um, we had uh, Bert um, and Jovan Sales and, uh, we kind of had to, you know, learn how to do some of the camera stuff from them because they weren't, oh, yeah. you know, they weren't, they weren't with us. So we had to figure out how to do a GoPro and all that kind of stuff. So they, but the, the better part was, yeah, the relation, I mean, we, we were with them on the boat um, after we landed in Antarctica, Antarctica, they had to, they drove us back to, to, to Chile and we were on the boat with them for six days and pretty rough seas, you know? Yeah. Um, and so that's just a lot of time to, kind of spend with with other people in really tight quarters um yeah. and so yeah we we got to know them really well them and the um the guys who were running the boat um and i think even you know the the owner of the the boat the braveheart his name was nigel jolly um from new zealand and his son matt um jolly was was around my age um and he was the captain of the ship and he had a two-year-old son too and so we really connected because i was like listen matt you know, I've got a baby and yeah. it's really important that I get home. And you have like, to get me back. <laughs> exactly. He's like, I got you. We kind of had this sort of intimate moment almost of like, honestly, shedding a little tears and saying, yeah. you know, just being like, Hey, he, he was like, I got your back, man. We, you know, we'll, we'll make sure that we, we take care of you. And so that was the reality of the trip. You know, we were, we were fully unsupported and, um, yeah. you know, in, in extremely treacherous, uh, waves and water and, and storms. Um, but because of the Antarctic treaty, you know, we had to have this, this sort of trailing vessel. Um, and I think for me, that was, uh, to, to know that there were guys on that ship who cared about us, um, I think was, was a bit of a relief. So, however, you know, people out there think about these, these expeditions, um, we had to take them along and, you know, we didn't, we didn't touch them or see them the whole way, but, um, it really, they really became an important part of the trip too, because they were, uh, in some ways like the, the angels for us as well um, yeah. up for us. But I, that being said in the, one of those storms, if one of you guys would have somehow went overboard and the line didn't connect, like, I don't know if that, that boat falling, like there was, there would have been nothing they could have done. No, no. 
it, 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 in the large storms, it became really quickly apparent that if we went overboard, you were not getting picked up. Yeah. The, the current was too strong. The waves are too wow. big. The water was too cold. You had maybe, I mean, I think in, 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 in really like the most ideal circumstances, maybe 45 minutes in the water, but realistically probably closer to 20 yeah. um, until you're out. Dang so the, and a lot of times we wouldn't see the boat, you know, the boat would, it would be on the horizon and then it would be gone for 12 hours. Um, we knew they were always kind of there, but we couldn't see them. So you're, you are, you are pretty alone. Um, and especially in those big storms. Um, yeah. I, I think we all talked about in the last storm, where we are on sea anchor, when you, when you transition out to the boat, we're sitting in, in 25 foot, 30 foot potentially waves. And some of these are crashing over the, over the top of the boat, some are crashing over the side. And all of us talked about an experience of almost getting washed over in that moment. And at that moment, we are on sea, sea anchor, everybody's, everybody's asleep. So nobody's going to hear you go yeah. over. Oh, um, and yeah, the, the trailing boat is, it's in a storm. So they're also trying to deal with the, the 20 or 30 foot waves and they're you know, not anywhere near where we are. So yeah, if you go over in that moment, and I think Jamie actually had a moment where he caught himself on a safety line with his arm because he didn't have his, he wasn't attached yet to the, yeah. to the safety cord. And literally that could have been it for him. Um, and luckily it wasn't, and he caught, you know, he caught his arm on the safety cord, but there were a couple moments like that, um, that we all talked about of a wave coming through and quite attached yet. And what that would mean once you're in that water, cause it's just, it's not water you can really sit in for very long, which I think makes it yeah as treacherous as, as it was. Exactly. Yeah. Man, that's wild, man. Uh, my, <laughs> we, we watched the film and you guys got to the end and then you get back on the boat to go back to Chile. And I just have to say this, my daughter, my six-year-old's like, why don't they just row back? <laughs> <laughs> and i was like have you been watching this like the last hour of this movie like what what are you talking about she's like i don't know they should have rode back and i'm like okay yeah hats, <laughs> but, off to the, hats off to the team that rose back um, <laughs> hey to be I'm fair though she she said the same thing i ran a 50k from my house uh-huh. up to, to boulder colorado and they all picked me up from there and apparently on the drive up there though she was like can't dad just run back and i was like oh, oh man. so apparently this is a thing she thinks uh but i wanted to ask really quick just to start wrapping it up like when you're on that boat going back and you're with your crew of guys you know you you did it you accomplished it like do you start kind of trying to process it then or like when have you talked with them afterwards and really process this event together or has that not happened? I think, you know, Andrew and I were super connected because we we're always on the same shifts. Um, and we had had, a, we had known each other before the trip too. Um, Cause we went to, to college together and rode together in college. Um, so I think Andrew and I spent a lot of time with each other in that bow cabin. And it, it was funny, like for probably the first, four months after the trip, we would text each other all, you know, like all the yeah. time, um, back and forth. And that kind of, that kind of did fall off a little bit, but I, I, I probably talked to Andrew every couple of weeks now. Um, we didn't, we didn't have a whole group debrief. I think the first couple of days back on the boat, we were when going back to, to Chile. 
it was just sleep. It was like, go down into your little tiny ca cabin that was super dark and sleep for 16 hours and only come up to, to get calories back in your body. Because over the course of, um, you know, over the course of 12 days that we went across, I think I lost close, probably close to 20 pounds wow. um, of body weight. So you're, you know, you're just, you need to, to resupply and, and get your energy back um, after a pretty, pretty tough, tough two weeks on the water. Um, so you were doing a lot of sleeping. I think <laughs> I actually came back. I flew back to um, my wife's family from Chicago. So I, I flew back from Chile to Chicago and landed on January 2nd. Um, stayed, stayed with her, her parents for a couple of days, flew home on the, on the 4th, back to California and was back working and teaching on the 6th. Yeah. Um, so there was no, there was no, re you know, there was no Dude, like, that's the life of a teacher period. right there. <laughs> yeah. It was just like, hope you had a nice winter break. Welcome back. Um, and I was presenting <laughs> on, you know, presenting for staff, staff workshops and professional development on the Monday, the 6th. Um, yeah, just got right back in it. That teacher life, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's yeah, that's crazy. Do you do you have the uh the bug now, like the adventure bug where you know you feel kind of the need to somewhat go out and try to capture that feeling again, even if it's just the feeling of having one thing to do, like that focus. Mm -hmm. Um or it's the feeling of just like the silence, right? Like you're just in the middle of nowhere where it can be silent, you know, and you can have that peace. Cause I know as you're, you're a dad, you're a principal husband, like you have so much going on all the time to find that focus and to find that quiet time, you know, seems important to me. Like that's why I really connect with your story, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I think after done, doing this trip, um, which was the first expedition I had done for other guys on the trip. They had done other expeditions and I can see why people get hooked. Yeah. Um, because there's just so much, there's so much that goes into it. Even getting to the start line is so difficult. Um, you know, Fian really started planning it two years before we left and it was sort of a dream of his. And then a lot of different, it, this is the, the nature of the team, a lot of different people coming in and joining and providing their expertise and how to, how to do it. And, um, and of course, adding in Colin who had done a lot of different expeditions um, and really helped us figure out exactly, you know, the, the logistical end of what we needed to do to get off of, um, off of Chile in the first place, um, all of those things, I think that those things are a bit, are also intoxicating, like the, the lead up, the anticipation to the actual event itself. And it's funny because Jamie and Cam both talked about the Indian Ocean Row and they, they were kind of like, oh yeah, this is why it's really hard and I didn't want to do it after I finished the Indian Ocean. But you're, you know, it's like you forget um, how moms talked about you know childbirth and forgetting the pain of childbirth you you only remember um, the good parts about it and yeah that allows you to keep going so I think that feeling is is definitely there I think Sarah would kill me if I told her I was going to go row across the Drake Passage or do something like that again <laughs> um, I feel like I might have used my 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 one you got that once in a lifetime pass. <laughs> um, but no I think that, I think it's true and I'm 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 planning right now um, this summer I was like, you know what, Sarah, I'm going to bike from Oakland to Chicago. 
just going to get on my bike and do it. And you so, coming through Denver? Yeah. So, you know, I might have to stop at your house on the way. <laughs> I, would, that would lo- I would love that, man. That'd be so Great. cool. Yeah. So that I, I, I do think that there's, it's, it's fun to dream about these goals and, and set them. And I think probably a lot of the people who listen to these podcasts um, do really amazing things. Yeah. I've listened to a lot of the other people on here and I'm always just wowed by the things that people put themselves through yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> on a daily basis, um, which are, are just incredible. So I think for me, it's, it's about having, having a goal um, to strive for and, and really that the, just getting really in, in falling in love with the planning of it too. Um, which is never really, if we we talked earlier about like your weaknesses and I think the planning part sometimes is a place where I, I do struggle. Um, but I think it's like a combination of that planning and, um, I don't know, what do you want to call it? Am- ambition or adventure, whatever it is. Like when those two things come together, you can really accomplish some amazing things. Yeah. That's amazing, man. Well, John, I, anything else you wanted to add, you know, before we, we wrap up or. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, when, when we talked at the beginning, um, you said you wanted to talk about, about leadership and about the trip, like what it's like afterwards and, and about fatherhood. And um, I was thinking a lot about just, uh, this idea of of grief, actually, which maybe you didn't anticipate me saying, but I, I've been thinking about this a lot because we've we've been in just a really hard time since last March, um, and for me recently, um, my grandmother died a couple couple of weeks ago, and um, and my wife and I are having a hard time conceiving again, having another kid, and these like things that come up in your life that can be really, really tough. Um, we have to deal with them. And, and I think it's, I've been thinking a lot about like, what is our approach to dealing with the sort of like the hard realities that life throws at us. Um, and I read this, I was sent this, this short passage about grief with this sort of like this concept that grief is, are these waves that sort of continuously roll through. And sometimes these waves are, you know, a hundred feet tall and crash over you and break your boat. And all you can do is hang on to the, the, the piece of rescue debris next to you. And sometimes they roll through and you roll with that wave and then it's calm again. And it really made me think about the row too, connecting those two things, like this concept of acceptance. Um, you're out there on the Drake passage and there's really, there's really no control that you have over the ocean, none. Uh, for anybody that's ever been a surfer or spent time on the ocean, you know those waves will take you anywhere they, they want you to go. Um, and so really all it is, is, is then your, your preparation and your ability to kind of mentally accept the reality that you're in. Um, and I think that's something I've been thinking about a lot lately that we've been in quarantine for almost a year now um, we haven't seen our kids, our students for, um, you know, for a year. And, and now here we are kind of coming out on the other side of this and what is going to be our ability to, um, to sort of accept these large waves that come through and crash over us and then, um, and then deal with, deal with the, the aftermath. Um, and how can we just sort of accept who we are and, and where we are and appreciate the moments that we're in. I think that that's, 
that's something that I think is really, um, yeah, really pulling at my heart right now. Yeah. And that's like, I mean, it, it's, it's all you can do at times, you know, mm-hmm. you're like, all I can do is just accept this and, you know, roll with the waves, which is amazing. I always think about you, you just reminded me and it's a, it's a story I read to my kids, but, uh, I always think about grief as like, there's the, the bear hunt book. Have you read that? The bear hunt, the bear hunt where it's like, we're going on a bear, Uh Uh you know? And then it's just like, they come across an obstacle and it's just like, you can't go over it. You can't go under it. You just got to go through it. And I'm like, man, (laughs) it sucks. Like, I'm like, I want to go over it or under it. I would rather avoid this at all costs, but that doesn't do anyone any good. You know, Mm -hmm. you just got to go through it and it sucks. And I hate that you lost your grandma and, you know, it's just heartbreaking, but it is, I mean, that was a really beautiful way you put that. So thank you for sharing, man. Yeah. I think that that maybe I'll leave you with this is maybe a little more uplifting, but if anybody (laughs) ever wants to study an albatross, they are like the ultimate go with it animal that I've ever met in my life. So an albatross, there's a lot of albatross that go from, um, uh, from South America and the islands around there all the way down to Antarctica. And they have a, they can have a wingspan up to 12 feet. So they've got these enormous wings. Um, and they just can soar on the wind without, without really flapping their wings for, for hundreds of miles. Wow. And these albatross, we knew they were in the area. We knew whales were in the area cause you would see the albatross circling around yeah. and the whale, you know, the whales were probably feeding on fish or whatever. Right. And they would just swoop down and grab the, the fish, but they actually would just ride with us. So they would, they, not on top of the boat, but you know, they'd hang out yeah. in the boat and fly by us. And in these big storms, they would just sit on top of the water and hunker down and put their, you know, put their head, tuck their head underneath their, their wing. And they looked like they were having fun. Honestly, <laughs> like, Oh, great. 20 foot wave. No problem. You're like, They're taunting um, me. <laughs> exactly. So we were always like amazed by the, al- we always felt, you know, comfortable out there on the ocean when we saw these huge albatross just enjoying the water. Wow. And you're like, I need to be like an albatross now. Be like an albatross. That, if you're going to take away anything from this whole hour of conversation, be like an albatross. That's right. That's awesome. Well, John, where can people kind of like either follow your adventure, future adventures, or um, also see the documentary, uh, The Impossible Row? Yeah. If you want to see the documentary, it's on Discovery+. Plus. Um, which is their new streaming application. Um, it's a 70, about a 75 minute documentary on Discovery Plus. And it was awesome. Highly recommended. I thought they did a nice job. I thought they did a really nice job. And then um, you can also check out uh, short clips on YouTube um, that were created during, actually during the trip. Um, and those are all free um, as well. And um, Discovery, the thing about that's cool about Discovery Plus actually is you can do a week free subscription on it. Um, to check out some of their content and decide if you, you know, if you want to go with it, but I have been using it and I like it. Um, and then, um, if you want to check out, follow my Instagram, I'm john.r.peterson. Um, and all the other guys on the, um, on the trip, uh, also have an Instagram too, uh, including Colin O'Brady, um, Andrew Town. Waiting to uh, climb up K2 right now who's waiting to climb up K2 right now. Yes. Uh, it looks crazy. I keep following it and I'm like, man, that just, it just looks like straight up. That mountain looks like you just are climbing a straight up wall. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it looks nuts. Um, and Fian Paula is the impossible row captain. 
Um, so all, yeah, all the guys have their, their own Instagrams. I think that you can follow too. Um, and yeah, and, and check them out. Nice, man. Awesome. Well, John, thank you for coming on the show. I'd love to talk leadership with you at some point too, if, if you ever have a, a free moment in the future. So sure. Yeah. I need to send you, send you my uh, core values selector. Heck yeah. I wrote that down and then I'm like, oh man, we're not even going to get to that yet. But <laughs> episode three trilogy for sure. Yeah, <laughs> All right. That wraps up this week's show. Um, huge thanks to John for coming back on. Always really truly enjoy talking with him um really connect with with his ideas based on teamwork and leadership uh along with just being kind of fascinated with a guy who would go out and row uh to antarctica um (laughs) that just captivates me like i said antarctica is one of the places on earth that is definitely on my bucket list uh it just seems in this day of day and age where we're so kind of connected all the time and you're always around people um, to be in a place like Antarctica just has to have this amazing, amazingly like remote feeling um, and kind of, you know, kind of make you just feel alive in that way. I don't know. I don't know about you, but when I'm in like a remote area and no one else is around, uh, for miles and miles, like for whatever reason, I can just feel more alive then. And I think part of it is just me knowing like, Hey, if something happens, like you're relying on yourself to get yourself out of this, you know, you can't fall back on, you know, some of the, the things you can rely on in, you know, regular society when you're kind of like in your house or in your neighborhood or in your city. Um, and I think that's why like, being in the backcountry just has that extra appeal. That and, of course, what we talked about in the episode, like just the quietness of it all, just realizing just how truly quiet it is and how it can quiet your mind to just kind of leave the hustle and bustle of everyday normal normalcy for most of us, you know, where we're, we're doing stuff constantly or there's noise in some way or another constantly um things like that so uh yeah that's why antarctica to me just represents that idea to like the extreme um you know because like you know i'm out here in colorado i can definitely get out into the wilderness and find places where it's just me um but go to antarctica man that's like times 50 million (laughs) at that point probably um that number wasn't mathematically accurate probably. Um, but yeah, I also want to just say like what John shared at the end about grief and, and comparing it to the ocean. I mean, I really, really truly connected to that. And I emailed him, uh, today and actually just told him like, thank you so much for opening up and sharing about that because that quote, it just, puts something that is challenging right like grief is a challenging idea to kind of like attempt to wrap your head around i mean i don't even know if you can wrap your head around but it's it's this challenging kind of concept but using an analogy like that like really helped me like kind of understand you know uh under understand it and maybe just have like a new kind of like way to visualize it. Um, 
because it is such a human experience unfortunately like i wish it wasn't but it, it it is and and to know that and to hear people talk openly about going through times of grief kind of can help you out because you know if you're out there and you're going through something there's a plenty of times where you can feel like you're the only person going through it um and then to hear somebody actually talk about what they're going through too like you can connect to that and hopefully that helps you out um you know through your journey of processing uh grief and stuff like that so uh i really appreciated the fact that he shared that um also, I really just enjoyed his talk about teamwork because the more I think about it, the more I thought about it after this conversation, I'm like, man, you take any team building activity your company has made you do, and then you put six dudes in a boat rowing to Antarctica, and that's that team building activity to the most extreme, right? Like you're in this boat with just six other people relying on each other to get where you actually need to go. And one thing, and I can't remember if I brought it up when we were talking, but one thing I loved in the documentary is once they're in Antarctica, they're standing on the rocks with their sea legs, um, which those rocks looked really dangerous to stand on with sea legs. But <laughs> but uh, I think the captain, Fion, brings up the fact that like he's done a whole bunch of different ocean rows and he's never had the experience where every single person made their shift. You know, there's usually people covering other people's shifts and things like that. But for these six dudes going to Antarctica across the Drake Passage, every single one of them made all their shifts. No one missed a shift at all, um, which is just an incredible thing and just kind of shows you just how tight that team was and how high functioning that team was. And I think it, it speaks to not only the captain, but to every person on the team, right? Like they're all stepping up at, as leaders at one point. Like I, I liked how John said at some point on a team, you will, you will be the weakest link, which is so true. But the opposite is also true. At some point on a team, you're going to be the strongest link, um, you know, and, and for those six guys, I'm sure at some point they were all the strongest link on that team holding everyone together. And that shines through when you watch the documentary. So, which I'm going to promote one more time, which is right now, uh, check it out. It's on discovery plus it's the impossible row. Um, it's about an hour long. I really, really, really enjoyed, enjoyed it as a dude who just like loves watching adventure films. Um, this one was really well done. So really well shot. Um, entertaining, fascinating, all that stuff. So you guys will, you guys will like it. Um, I also just want to kind of give a shout out to a previous guest, uh, Travis Macy. He started a podcast, um, this week and he has some of his episodes up. Uh, it's really good. It's called the Travis Macy show. Um, he is like a elite endurance athlete, adventure racer. Uh, he did the eco challenge, this last year, which was on Amazon, his team was featured quite a bit because him and his dad took it on. Um, but check it out, man. Like you're going to get a whole bunch of gems from that. If you're an adventurer, a racer, or just a human being going through life, especially, you know, over this last year, what we've all been for, uh, kind of forced into it enduring. So, um, check that out. That's the Travis Macy show. I thought I'd just 
mention it here because I just really enjoy talking to Travis. I think he's a really nice guy. Him and John would probably get along. They're both super nice guys. Um, and I just wanted to kind of let you guys know that he, he started something and it's awesome. So, uh, all right guys, that's it for this week. Um, we will get back at you next week. See ya.